And please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. Matthew, chapter 3. I'm going to read and preach verses 13 through 17 this morning about the baptism of Jesus and then the Spirit descending on him like a dove. You know this passage, perhaps. And the Father speaking again those words from heaven This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is really the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Right here at the beginning, he publicly identifies with the people who are being baptized by himself being baptized. And by that shows that he came to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. And then immediately following that, the Spirit and the Father both testify to the identity of Jesus showing that he is the anointed king and also the beloved son who came to fulfill all righteousness for us so that we could become beloved sons and daughters of God. There's much for us to learn here in this passage, so let's pray for God's help and we'll dive right in. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help as we come to this passage now together. Please open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your law. Please guard us from distraction. Make our hearts soft and receptive to your word. Guard us from being bored or just not caring or wishing we were somewhere else. If we struggle with those things, please change our hearts by the power of your spirit. And most of all, Help us to come to know you more, Jesus, and how wonderful it is that you came to fulfill all righteousness for us so that we could become beloved sons and daughters of God. Help us now. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 3, reading verses 13 through 17. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You can see in your sermon notes we have a fairly simple outline this morning. We'll look first at the baptism of Jesus in verses 13 through 15. And then we'll look at the identity of Jesus in verses 16 and 17. And let me add a few key words for kids. Children, you probably know about the key words for kids, but you can listen for these words while you're listening to the sermon. Adults are also welcome to do so. But you'll see there's a short list there. I wanna add three words. Let me add the word absolved, which is a little bit of a strange word. Absolved. And then trinity, and then 
grocery, like the grocery store. Absolved Trinity Grocery. And you can listen for all of those words. Well, let's see what we can learn together about Jesus fulfilling all righteousness for us so that we could become beloved sons and daughters of God. We're given a little bit of context there in verse 13. We read again in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee. Remember the town of Nazareth where Jesus was from was in the larger region of Galilee. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, that is the Jordan River, which was south of Galilee, to John, John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. So Jesus came to be baptized by John. And you may be wondering why he did that. Why was Jesus baptized? Why did he come to John to be baptized by him? I mean, he didn't need to be baptized. He wasn't a sinner who needed to repent like everyone else, so why was Jesus baptized? Well, Jesus himself is actually gonna answer that in a minute, but first we read in verse 14 that John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So John balks at baptizing Jesus, and we can understand why. He'd just told the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the people who were there, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And now that one who is mightier than him is standing in front of him, waiting to be baptized by him. And so John says to him, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me to be baptized? I'm not even worthy to carry your sandals. How then am I worthy to administer your baptism? I'm not worthy to baptize you, he's saying to Jesus. Understandably, he almost prevented Jesus from being baptized by him. And before we move on, I just wanna pause for a moment so that we can notice again John's humility. This is a grace we all desire to grow in as Christians, the grace of humility. Jesus comes to him to be baptized by him and he doesn't say, this is great. I get to baptize Jesus. This is gonna grow my ministry tremendously. This is gonna increase my popularity. This is gonna put me on the ministerial map that I'm the one who got to baptize Jesus. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't use Jesus to exalt himself. He humbles himself and exalts Jesus. He doesn't treat Jesus like a trampoline to spring himself up higher. No, he recognized that he needed to get under Jesus and raise him up higher. He inwardly felt and outwardly acknowledged his unworthiness. And that's the kind of humility we want to have as believers in our own hearts, in our own lives. Pride is our default mode by nature. Our sinful instinct is to exalt ourselves and to put ourselves first. Our tendency is to steal glory from God and to seek the praise of man. But in the presence of Jesus, when we compare ourselves to Jesus, then we see our unworthiness, then we see our sinfulness, then we see the ugliness of pride and the beauty of humility. Then we see that, as John said, he must increase 
and I must decrease. That's what happens here with John and we should let the humility we see in him inspire and produce greater humility in us. A humility that acknowledges our unworthiness, that acknowledges that before God and acknowledges that before men and acknowledges the worthiness and glory of Christ. So John says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? He almost prevents Jesus from being baptized by him. But, verse 15, Jesus answered him saying, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. That is, John consented to baptizing Jesus. And here is where Jesus answers the question of why he was baptized, why he submitted to the baptism of John. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. By submitting to the baptism of John, Jesus was identifying with his people. And he was showing that he came to do what he says here, to fulfill all righteousness on their behalf. And I wanna think about both of those things for a few minutes because they're so important, that Jesus identifies with his people and that he came to fulfill all righteousness. So first, he identifies with his people. He received the baptism of John like they received the baptism of John, except for one key difference, of course. He had no sin. He identified with sinners, yet he himself was sinless. John told the people to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and people were baptized by him, confessing their sins, And Jesus came to be baptized by him too, but it was not because he needed to repent. It was not because he had any sins to confess. It was because he was identifying with his people, with sinners, with those he came to save. He was representing them, substituting for them, standing in for them, taking their place. He was identifying with his people This is a wonderful truth about Jesus, worthy of much meditation on our part and encouragement that we can draw from it. But it can be misunderstood. One example of this is, I think, the recent ads you may have seen on TV or heard about, the He Gets Us ads. Perhaps you're familiar with these, which have the praiseworthy goal of, as they put it, reintroducing people to the Jesus of the Bible That's a good goal. But if you've seen the ads, you might wonder whether the message, he gets us, all of us, is the right message to send to people who need to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, like we have been enabled to do as believers. One fears that the message they receive when they hear he gets us is something like he understands us and approves of us and accepts us as we are, which is, of course, not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not so much that he gets us as that he saves us. 
He redeems us from sin. He saves all who turn from their sin and trust in him alone for their salvation. So I fear that he gets us as perhaps not the right message to send to sinners in need of a savior. But this truth we're considering that Jesus identifies with us, with his people, that's a wonderful truth that we can draw encouragement from in our times of need, isn't it? The book of Hebrews says in chapter two and also chapter four that Jesus was made like us in every respect. It says that he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. It says that therefore he is a merciful and faithful high priest, a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. And because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Part of why Jesus submitted to John's baptism was to show that he identifies with us and we can draw encouragement from that truth at all times. So next time you're tempted, remember that he too was tempted and remember that he is able to help those who are being tempted, so ask him for help. Or when you feel your weakness, remember that he too experienced weakness and he is able to sympathize with you in your weakness and he will be merciful and faithful to you in your weakness. Because he identifies with us, we can draw near to him to receive mercy from him, to find grace from him, to help in time of need. By submitting to the baptism of John, Jesus was identifying with his people. And secondly, the second thing I wanna consider is he was showing that he came to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. Let's think about that for a minute. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. What does that mean? Well, it means, as I mentioned earlier in the service, that he came to live the life we haven't lived and to die the death we deserve to die. This is sometimes referred to as the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ is that he paid the penalty for our sins. He paid our debt. But we also need the active obedience of Christ which is that he kept the law perfectly for us and he credits us with his righteousness, with his own perfect obedience. See, our problem is not just that we have sin, but also that we lack righteousness. To use a banking analogy, our bank account is in the negative far in the negative. We owe more than we could ever repay. But if Christ pays our debt, that's of course wonderful, but it just brings our bank account back up to zero. But God requires perfection, a full account, if you will. So in addition to paying our debt, Christ also credits our account with infinite funds so that not only is our debt paid in full, 
but our account is also full of credit. His blood atones for our sins and his righteousness is counted as ours. And both his active and passive obedience, his perfect life and sacrificial death are him fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf. That's what he came to do. That's what his baptism shows he came to do. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's a great line in the hymn we're gonna sing at the end, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. It goes like this. Fully absolved through these, thy blood and righteousness, fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. This helpfully shows, I think, the practical significance of the fact that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness for us. Through the blood and righteousness of Jesus, all who trust in him are fully absolved from sin and fear and guilt and shame. So because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for us, we are fully absolved from sin We've been set free from sin. When sin calls, we don't have to answer. When sin tempts, we don't have to give in. When sin rears its ugly head, we can put it to death by the power of the Spirit. Because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for us, we are fully absolved also from fear. We don't have to fear the wrath of God, because the wrath of God was already poured out on Christ. We don't have to fear losing the approval of man because we already have the approval of God. We don't have to fear death because death is the door to eternal life for the believer. We don't have to fear anything because all things work together for our good. Because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for us, we are fully absolved also from guilt and shame. We who are guilty have already been declared not guilty by the judge of all the earth. When we sin and we feel shame rightly, we remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our guilt and shame, as Ezra prayed in the Old Testament, have mounted up to heaven, but Christ came down from heaven and bore our guilt and shame on the cross so that we could experience the joy and the freedom of the forgiveness of our sins. Because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for us, we are fully absolved from sin, from fear, from guilt and shame and we should seek to live each day in the sunshine of those great truths. So the baptism of Jesus shows that he identifies with his people, and it shows that he came to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. But immediately following his baptism, both the Spirit and the Father testify to his identity. That is, of course, very important. It's very significant. 
that this happens. And let's look at it now together under our second main point, the identity of Jesus. The public witness of the Spirit and the Father to the identity of the Son. We read in verse 16 there. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And let me actually pause there for two quick comments. First, a word about the mode of baptism. Bible-believing Christians disagree about whether the proper mode of baptism is immersion or pouring or sprinkling water on the head of the person being baptized. Our belief and our practice, as you may have seen here in this church, is that the proper mode of baptism is pouring or sprinkling. As our confession of faith puts it in chapter 28, paragraph three, dipping, that is immersion, dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. And you may disagree with that, and that's okay, but I'm just trying to clarify here what our view and practice is. And when we read a passage like this one that's before us, where it says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, we take that to mean that he went up from the water back onto the land. Not that his body came up out of the water after being immersed under the water. Same thing in Acts chapter eight with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch where it says in verse 38 that, quote, they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him, meaning Philip baptized the eunuch. Which again, we take to mean that they both went from the land down into the water, not that they both were immersed in the water. More could be said on that, but that's just a quick word on how we would interpret verses like these with respect to the mode of baptism. Secondly, a quick word about the location of baptism. Some Christians, when visiting Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, have actually gotten baptized in the Jordan River, even after being baptized somewhere else. And I think it's important to understand just two things about this phenomenon first. Baptism is a one-time event, not to be repeated. It's a one-time event. And second, what makes baptism significant is not the water that's used or the location, but the blessing of God and the work of the Spirit and the gospel truths that baptism signs and seals. So just two things to ponder regarding the mode of baptism and the location of baptism. But back to the witness of the Spirit and the Father, more importantly, verse 16 again says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the witness of the Spirit and the Father to the identity of Jesus. He was anointed by the Spirit as the messianic king and attested by the Father as the beloved son. All in fulfillment of prophecies like Isaiah 42, verse one. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
Now this is a very interesting passage, a very significant passage, and I want us to notice that all three members of the Trinity are present and active in this passage. Right here at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. J.C. Ryle pointed out that it was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in the great work of saving sinners. The Father elects us, the Son redeems us, and the Spirit applies to us the redemption planned by the Father and purchased by the Son. So to the whole Trinity belongs all the glory. But I want us to focus just in the minute or two we have left on the words of the Father regarding the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This man, Jesus, who had just been baptized with water by John was the Son of God incarnate. He was the eternally begotten son of the father who became man for us and for our salvation. And he was the beloved son of the father with whom the father was well pleased. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the father and he says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. The Father has loved the Son with a perfect and pleasing love from all eternity past. And now, at the beginning of the Son's public ministry, the Father expresses that love with these memorable words. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The son has the favor of the father. What about us? Do we have the favor of God? Well, if we are united to the son by faith, then we do. Though we deserve God's disfavor because of our sins against him, We have his favor because his mercy and grace toward us are abundant and free. All who repent of their sin and put their trust in the Son have the favor of the Father. And if we have the favor of the Father, then we have everything we truly need, don't we? We don't have to go through life needy 
looking to all kinds of things and all kinds of people to fulfill us and satisfy us because we have the love and acceptance and approval of our heavenly father. We are his beloved sons and daughters and he is well pleased with us in his son. I wonder if you've ever gone to the grocery store when you're super hungry. If you have, then you know what it's like. Just about everything you see looks good, you wanna eat it. And if you don't exercise self-control, you end up buying more than you planned to buy. But if you go to the grocery store full, you aren't susceptible to that. Because you're already full, you're already satisfied, you're already content. We should go through our lives full of the favor of God. We should enter each day full and satisfied and content in the love of the Father for us. Then, instead of needing love, we can give love. Instead of using people, we can serve people. Instead of looking to things for what only God can give, we can enjoy things as gifts from God. Then we won't try to fill our hearts with the world because our hearts are already full of the Lord. When we are convinced that we are beloved sons and daughters of God in the beloved Son of God, then we have everything we truly need and we can be full and satisfied and content as we go through our days. We are beloved sons and daughters of the Father and he is well pleased with us in his Son. But as we close this morning, it's good for us to remember once again how it is that this can be the case. How can we who are sinners against God become beloved sons and daughters of God? It's only through the beloved son with whom the father was well pleased being forsaken by the father on the cross as he bore our sins on his shoulders. The only way we could be forgiven was for Christ to be forsaken. The only way the father could be well pleased with us was for him to pour out his wrath on his son. The only way for us to become beloved sons and daughters of God was for the beloved son to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's exactly what he did. That's why he came. He came to fulfill all righteousness for us so that we could be fully absolved from sin and fear, guilt and shame so that we could go through life full of the favor of God so that we could become beloved sons and daughters of our Father. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are.
Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for fulfilling all righteousness for us so that we could become beloved sons and daughters of our Father. We pray that you would cause these truths to go down deep in our hearts and then to produce fruit in our lives for the good of others and for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.